Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you want to communicate to us and reveal to us your incredible beauty so that our hearts can be transformed to experience the best possible life, the greatest possible happiness. Father, we pray that our hearts would be more fully sealed in your character through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. She looked up at the path, and the, the path was, was steep. It, w- it was wide enough that, that they had wagons, and they had horses, and, and they, were, they were fully loaded wagons, and they were headed up this path. And as, as they were headed up this path, she noticed that, that she, the, the, the path kept getting narrower. It, it was a very rugged path. And, and as they continued going along this path, they, it kept getting narrower and narrower. And, and pretty soon some were saying, no, 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 no. We can't do this. This is, this is too rigorous. We're, we're going back. And, and then they kept going further. And, and eventually they began to question as, as one wheel would drop off from the wagon and another wheel would drop off. And pretty soon they realized, this is, this is really dangerous. These wagons are going to take us and the horses all down. We have to leave the wagons behind. But what about all our stuff that's piled on these wagons? Well, we'll get as much of it as we can. And they, they took the stuff and they, they piled it and they loaded it onto their horses. And they got on their horses and they, they began to continue up the path and they left those wagons behind. And, and they kept going up this steep path and it kept getting narrower and narrower. On the one side was a deep precipice. On the other side was a wall as high as they could see. A high white wall. And as they continued going along, it, the, the path got narrower and narrower so that they began to bump up against the wall. And when the horse bumped up with the baggage against the wall, it would nearly go over the opposite direction, over the precipice. And, and so pretty soon they began to realize, we can't even have the baggage. And, and they cut the baggage off of their horses and they continued going up this narrow path. You know, it's fascinating to read what the Bible has to say about what takes place in the end. And we've been looking at it from various angles. We've looked at it from Matthew chapter 24 and when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and how that parallels the end and the signs of the times. And we've been looking now at Revelation and and how this depicts what's going to take place in the end. And I want today for us to continue looking at Revelation chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 13. And we, if you're just joining us today, I encourage you to go and check out on our YouTube channel or to go to our podcast on our website because we've had a number of, of, of sermons that have been leading us through Revelation 13 that have given us a picture of what's happening there. And I'm not going to recap all of that, but we are currently looking at the land beast. And today I'm just going to say, this represents the United States. Rather than going through the, the reasons that I believe that is so clear from the Bible that it represents that. But the land beast, if you, you're curious why in the world I'm saying that, go ahead and check out those messages on YouTube. But if you, you look at, starting in verse 11, it represents the United States, this beast that speaks, uh, that looks like a lamb, but that speaks like a dragon. And, and last week, do you remember, does anybody remember? I know it was seven long days ago. What did we notice last week? What did we notice last week? What did we talk about last week? Anybody remember seven days ago? Selfishness. Right? That was the, the key thing. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar building an image and how he was doing it for the glorification of his empire and specifically of himself and inviting people to worship that or die. And then we saw how in Revelation 13, the image to the beast representing Apostate Protestantism joined with the state to enforce religion upon the, United, the, the entire world. That this image to the beast, what does it do? Look in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So who is the image of the beast causing to be worshipped? Let's read it one more time. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Who is the image of the beast causing to be worshipped? The image of the beast representing 
the United States going away from all of its foundational principles, right? So this is a self-aggrandizement, a self-absorption, a focus on itself, saying, worship me. Is this making sense? Okay, so now let's jump down to the next verse, verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads. You see that this is a measure that creates equalization. Every single person, whether you're small, you're great, you're rich, you're poor, you're a bond, or you're, you're, you're a slave, or you're free, every single person is united by this one single uh, command that they should receive a mark on their right hand. And we talked about last week that representing the actions in the Bible. Or the forehead, representing assent and agreement with the coercive worship that is being asked for by this power, the force to follow a specific religion, religious pattern. And then verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Okay, so how is this going to initially be enacted? What type of... Uh, of action is taken by the image of the beast. How does it coerce people into worshiping the image of the beast? Are we tracking along? If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table there. Right? Really, we're going to have to dig into this. So, So let's read it again. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 17. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So what is the action that's taking place in order to force people into this pattern of worship? There's a force stopping people from doing something specifically. What are they stopped from doing? Being able to buy or sell. There's an economic pressure that comes in that stops people from being able to buy or sell. Now, sometimes when I read this, I think, man, that's, that's the ideal world. I can't wait to live in that world because I hate going to any store except for the grocery store. I would miss going to that store. That would be pretty bad. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding, the verse 18 continues, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. It's fascinating to realize that that the Bible places an emphasis, a priority upon what takes place with people's finances in the end. What takes place with being able to buy or sell. And specifically that there's going to become a power that is economically so powerful that its withholding of goods is able to oppress people. And the Bible repeatedly points this out to us. Look at James chapter 5 with me. James chapter 5 is a, an intense portion of Scripture that talks about what's going to take place right in the end. James chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, says it this way. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. It's going to be really miserable for those of you that are really rich, it's saying. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, gold and silver are precious, especially gold, because it doesn't corrode. And yet, in the end, it's saying, hey, this will become valueless in the end. Then it says this, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. You, you piled up your treasures for the last days. What were you thinking? But, but notice what type of treasures this is. Okay, Because I don't want us to walk away. Well, well let's, let's look first. Verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who made, mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. How was this treasure piled up? By fraud, by deceit, by oppression, by, by not paying the workers of the field as much as they deserve, by, not, by withholding the just due of people. This is basically describing an economic situation where it's 
you have a win-lose situation going on where business deals that are happening are one person is winning and everybody else is losing in the process. And when that's the system, it creates a massive amount of wealth for certain people, but in the end, it says that this is going to be an incredible problem. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. There's a picture of wealth being piled up to, in the end, our own destruction if we choose to trust in it. Look at another place. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, describing this day when Jesus comes back, specifically talks again about what we're going to be doing with our riches on that day. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19 says, uh, sorry, verse 19, yeah. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth mightily. This is like Revelation chapter 6 where it says they'll be running from the face of the Lamb to hide and asking the mountains to fall upon them. And then it goes on, which is just crazy to think, to run from a Lamb. But verse 20 says, In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made, each for himself to worship to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks, into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. You know, know, I've read these verses before and I thought, well, good thing. I don't have any idols of gold. I don't have any idols of silver. I'm good to go. I'm not going to be throwing any idols to the holes because I just don't have any of that. Did you know what they use in your smartphone and your computer? Have you ever researched this? How many tons of gold and silver that the technology industry has to use every year? Because Gold is becoming more and more important. They even use platinum in a lot of phones. Gold, platinum. They use uh, many different types of precious metals. Now I can picture in that day tossing this down a hole. How about you? And and I think sometimes, you know, I'm not really that wealthy, but maybe I am when I look around the world around me. And I realize how much God has blessed me with And I recognize maybe this comes a little closer to home than I thought. In the book, uh, Christ's Object Lessons, commenting on this specifically, it says it this way. Talking about James chapter 5, it says, The scripture describes the condition of the world just before Christ's second coming. James the Apostle pictures the greed and oppression that will prevail. He says, Go to now, you rich men. You have heaped up treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who has reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries out, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. This he goes on to say, is a picture of what exists today. Now this was written back uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. By every species of oppression and extortion, men are piling up colossal fortunes while the cries of starving humanity are going up before God. Is that true? It's pretty crazy, actually, to look at what's taking place. In fact, if you look at the pandemic and what's taking place during the pandemic, have you seen what's happened to billionaires during the pandemic? You would expect that with all of these problems going on, with all these job losses, that billionaires would be losing money, wouldn't you? Well, it turns out that you take the top, I think it's about 600 billionaires, and their net worth has increased by 29% during the pandemic. Some extreme representatives of that would be Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. Uh, Jeff Bezos, during the pandemic, his wealth has risen by an estimated $73 billion. Now, Now this makes absolutely no sense to you and I because none of us has any money anywhere near that. At least that's my guess. Let's look at another one really fast before we look at what a billion dollars looks like. Musk, uh, Elon Musk, the founder and CEO of Tesla, 
The Tesla stock has just been skyrocketing, and his net worth has gone up by 274%, by $67 billion. He is now like the third or fourth wealthiest man in the world, all during this pandemic. And, and, and here's the thing, you might say, well, yeah, Jeff Bezos, he, he invented this amazing company, he's got this amazing system, he deserves that. Here's the thing. I want you to think about what it would take to earn a billion dollars. Let's say you made $1,000 a day. Is that a lot of money to make in a day? For a pastor, that's a whole lot of money to make in a day. But let's say every single day of the year you made $1,000. You would have to go back to the time of Christ every single day making $1,000. That's 2,000 years. And then keep on going back another like 600 years to the time of Isaiah, earning $1,000 every single day of your life, and then you would have $1 billion. Still think that one human being and anything that he could do in his entire life is worth that? But if you stretch it a little bit further and say, Jeff Bezos, for the first time in history this past week when they had Amazon Prime Day and all of that, his wealth was estimated at over $200 billion. The first time in history that we have of somebody being worth $200 billion, at least in modern history. $200 billion? Is somebody worth that? Now you would have to go back 6,000 years to what I believe is close to the time of creation. And then you would need to get 90 compadres, so you have 91 of you every single day, along with your friends, earning $1,000 a day for 6,000 years. And then finally today, you could end up with $200 billion. But what about what's going on in America in general today? The magazine, The Rolling Stone, uh, back in August, it had this analysis of what's taking place. Uh, Dwight Nelson highlighted this uh, a few weeks back, and I, I thought it was a pertinent thing that you would enjoy. It compares what, what took place in the 1950s in America to what's happening today. In the 1950s, the marginal tax rates for the wealthy were 90%. Do you know that? 1950s, if you were wealthy, the marginal tax rate was 90%. The salaries of CEOs were on average just 20 times that of their mid-management employees. Now, 20 times, that sounds like a lot. Until you realize that today, the base pay of those at the top is commonly 400 times that of their salaried staff with many earning orders of magnitude more in stock options and perks. The elite 1% of Americans control $30 trillion in assets, while the bottom half have more debt than assets. The three richest Americans have more money than the poorest 160 million of their countrymen. That's half of the United States. The poor half of the United States, the poorer half, Three people in the United States have more than they have. Fully a fifth of American households, that's 20%, have zero or negative net worth. A figure that rises to 37% for black families. The median wealth of black households is a tenth that of whites. The vast majority of Americans, white, black, and brown, are two paychecks removed from bankruptcy. Though living in a nation that celebrates itself as the wealthiest in history, most Americans live on a high wire with no safety net to brace the fall. Friends, this is, this is a, a, a recipe for catastrophe. The fact that, that most Americans live with just two paychecks between them and financial disaster. So what is the answer? I can tell you that capitalism is bankrupt can also tell you that socialism is not the answer either. So, so what is the answer? What are the solutions? How do we find our way forward? Well, it's fascinating to see what the Bible describes as the optimal financial system. I want to invite you uh, to look at a few things that the Bible describes. And, and I think that these are crucial for us because it's clear that we are going to face a financial crisis. And 
If you were to look at Revelation chapter 18, it says that right at the end there's going to be this outpouring of the latter rain. And at that time, suddenly Babylon is going to implode. And it talks about how she's lived luxuriantly. She's made the, wealth, the merchants wealthy. And all of this is going to come crashing down upon her. And I don't want to be a part of that. I want to know how do I get out of this system? How, how can I free myself from the commercialization that is so rampant, especially as we head to the holidays? We're headed to Thanksgiving. We're headed to Christmas when buying is just like the American heroine. So look at what the Bible presents to us as, as the alternative to this. If, if you go back to the system that was set up by God through Moses. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, you can turn there in your Bibles with me, Exodus chapter 20. And while you're going there, think about who this is written to. The Israelites, they lived for 400 years in Egypt. As time went on and they were multiplying, the the Pharaoh realized that he had the power to oppress these people and that he could use them to make his empire greater and push them further down. And so he enslaved them, and he he treated them as totally worthless. They didn't get any money. They didn't get any days off. They weren't treated well at all. And and God brings them, rescues them out of this, even though they're kicking and screaming the whole time that he's leading them out. They're not really wanting to go. He drags them out of there and says, you're my priceless treasure, and now I'm going to exalt you, and all of the nations are going to come to you to say, wow, what is this system that I'm giving to you? And one of the first things that he does for them is he gives them something that is earlier recorded in Exodus chapter 16, but that is, that is more clearly enunciated in Exodus chapter 20. And that is the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Right? So there are six days in which I want you to work. It's important to be productive. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. I want for everybody around you to experience freedom. You see what this is? This is a resistance to every caste system. This is a resistance to any type of monetary value of of you are more important than I because you produce more than me, because you have more in your bank account than me. On the Sabbath, God says, lay all that aside and recognize something that we were all created by one God. And on this day, we are all equal. We come and we worship God And your boss might be sitting next to you, but he has no right to instruct you to do any work. God forbid you had servants. This is the day when you need to say, hey, let them rest. Your children on this day, you can't say, hey, take out the trash. Go and do this. On this is a day when everybody gets to recognize that my value is not in what I do. My value is that a God of love created me. The Sabbath is an incredible and beautiful resistance to the economic system that is driving all of us crazy and that is leading towards a self-absorption that is on a scale like we've never seen before. But if you keep going and, and you look at some of the other things that were instituted, if you look at the tithing system that was instituted in uh, Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, it says, All the tithe of the land, that's a tenth, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. He says, I've created everything, and and here you go. You can use it for your benefit. Oh, and by the way, you can use 90% of it. And what I want you to do is to to give that 10% back, to return it back to me. And and, and that 10%, it's going to go to my storehouse, and we're going to have this beautiful system that represents to the world the giving and loving nature of God so that the world can come and see that this is the best possible system. And so he gave tithe to them. But not only that, you have how he told them to treat those who wanted to come to be a part of their nation. Because anytime you have an 
a, a nation that is economically well off. Things are going really well. Everybody wants to come there. And the same is true for the United States of America. The same was true for Israel. People said, hey, I want to come and join this. And if they had fully followed God's plan, people would have flocked there. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 21 says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Treat, treat them with respect. And, and the first time law is mentioned in Exodus, it actually says, look, there will be one law for you and for the foreigner. You will have one law. All of you get to have equal footing on this freedom and liberty justice for all. There was the law of lending. Did you know that they couldn't charge each other interest? How awesome would that be? If, if we didn't have deals where we were charging absorbent interest of those who are in the most desperate need. Now, there were times where they could charge uh, certain people a, a lesser amount of interest, but it wasn't an exorbitant amount. There was the, the law of generosity. In uh, Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, it says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren with, within any of your gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide for him and willingly lend sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And Jesus takes this principle later and says, hey, give to whoever asks of you. If, if you have two cloaks and somebody else is lacking, give to them. Give, 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 because this is the nature of who God is. And this is the system that alone can create the prosperity that God wants. Because here's the thing, God is not against wealth. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, I'm the one who gives you the ability to make wealth. But He entrusts you to be a steward to make every life better around you in the process. It goes on to, so we have, we have the, the principle of generosity, which, which included the offerings. You know, they, they would bring free will offerings to each of the feasts and they would, they would make sure that there was offerings to help the poor that would, would make sure that God's uh, house would be uh, taking care of all of these different things. Then you have uh, generosity. Then you have this other one that I think most all of us would be extremely excited about. Every seven years, something took place. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, it says, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts, or you shall cancel debts. How awesome would that be? Can you imagine that every seven years there's a reset? <laughs> All those student loans, gone. That house mortgage, gone. Every seven years, we're all back to equal again financially. No more is anybody saddled by debt. No more does half of the country have whatever it was, so much more debt than even their income. But everything's back to an equilibrium. Isn't that a beautiful system to live on? Don't worry, I'm not running for president. But I think that Moses would have made an excellent president uh, based on what God was teaching him. And then it goes on to say that this would be the result of that. If, if you know, things go well for you and you are able to lend and pretty soon people are indebted to you and you just cancel that every seven years, this is the thing that would happen. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 and 5 says, However, there need be no poor among you, for in, that, in the land... The Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all these commands I'm giving you today. If you will follow this, if you'll do this, if every seven years you erase those debts, guess what? There's not going to be a single poor person among you. Now this has not happened in history, uh, but this was the, the goal that God laid out. You have the law of jubilee. Leviticus 27:24. So you had seven sevens, that's 49 years. And then on the 50th year was the year of Jubilee in which every single person's land went back to them. And if you don't own land, that doesn't mean much to you today. But in that day, when, they led those, when God led the slaves out of Egypt, Joshua, sometimes we read it and we're like, man, why does it go through all the details of like parsing out the land and which land went to who and what? And da, 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 da. I get really dizzy with all of that. It's confusing. You realize how beautiful this is? They were slaves. They had nothing. And God says, ah, each and every one of you get an equal portion. Each and every one of you get land. Each and every one of you have value. And each and every one of you 
can have his own land to till and to, to make his own land. Like Micah says, each one under his own fig tree will be enjoying the produce that God blesses them with. And then there was one other law. And I want you to check this out in your Bibles. This is Deuteronomy chapter 17. This was the law against obscene wealth accumulation. Right? So God put a cap. He's like, hey, I've got to be careful because if somebody develops too much power in any governmental structure, there's got to be a limit to this. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 says it this way. And you'll notice how it starts off saying, I know what you're going to decide in the future. This wasn't the ideal. God set up a system that didn't require a king, but in verse uh, 14, he says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and you say, uh, God's saying, I know what you're going to do. You're going to decide this. I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. He says, when this takes place, because I, I have... I know that you're going to decide this terrible idea that you need a king. I really wish that you'd follow this beautiful system that I'm setting up. But when you set up a king, here's what you need to do. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Then verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Okay, so this doesn't make a lot of sense to us because not many of us are multiplying horses, but imagine multiplying cars and multiplying tanks because that's what they, they had their chariots racing behind saying, hey, don't let the king multiply his horses. Don't let him multiply them. This, this is what a king's not to do. And then it goes on to say in verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So don't multiply horses and don't go down to Egypt to get horses. And specifically, don't multiply wives and don't multiply silver and gold. And then it goes on to say, also, he shall take a copy of this law and he shall put it in his throne so that he can read it all the days that he reigns. Because I want for this king, if you decide to have a king, to be a just king who operates on my principles of government a government that will allow for people to have liberty. A government that will allow for everybody to have an equal footing. A government that will allow for there to be no poor in the land. And this was the ideal, but unfortunately, um, you have the, the nation, just like God, uh, outlined saying, we want a king. And God had, had hoped that they would never ask that, but finally they asked Samuel, we want a king. So then David comes along. The end of David's life, he's, or you have King Saul, then you have King David, and at the end of David's life, he's wanting to build a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to have your son do that. And it's beautiful because he arranges the treasures. He gets all of the supplies to build the temple. And then Solomon comes and he sits on the throne and God appears to Solomon and says, what could I do for you? And he doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for long life. He, he says, look, I'm like a child. I don't know how to go in or out in these amazing people that you've set me over. I need wisdom to be able to govern them. Solomon's life started off in a really good direction. But as you continue to read as to what took place in Solomon's life, it quickly spirals out of control as power begins to corrupt. And, and we see that in our society today that that power is corrupting the United States of America today. It is becoming a place where coercion is ruling the day, where selfishness is ruling the day. And it's only going to get worse, but we can pray every day that, it, that God holds back the winds as long as possible. But look at 1 Kings chapter 4, and verse 26. It says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. What's he multiplying? Horses. God said, don't multiply horses. Solomon is multiplying horses. Where did Solomon say, where did God say not to get horses from? Don't go to Egypt. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 28. Also, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva. Solomon, what are you doing? Everything opposite of the system that God arranged for you. Then it goes on in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. What was he not to multiply? Silver and gold. But he multiplied it to such an extent that it was as common as stones in Jerusalem. 
And 1 Kings 11 verse 1 says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sodomites, and Hittites. But it gets even worse. Though he married these women and they they took him off in the wrong direction, though he multiplied silver and gold, though he multiplied uh, horses, all of this somehow led him to devalue human beings. To the extent where, you know, I've always thought of Solomon's temple as this most beautiful temple that was built, you know, the, one of the apexes of, of history to think about what Solomon did. And yet 1 Kings chapter 5, and verse 13 says, Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. 30,000 of his own people there in Israel. He makes them his slaves. And what did he use them for? 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 15 says, Now this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, and two other cities. So he used forced labor in order to build God's temple. This incredibly wealthy king who, who had all the silver and the gold being multiplied, who had the horses, he just wanted more. And this is what we call a win-lose system where I'm winning and you're losing. And you might think, well, I don't have obscene wealth. I don't have any of this. This isn't even a temptation to me. But I realized just a week ago how actually easy it is to use a win-lose system. We kind of do it without even thinking about it in our capitalistic society. Because, so... To make a long story short, we have a health plan that we are supposed to get a certain number of points, and that involves tracking our steps. And along with that, they give us this new system, gives us a free tracker. And so uh, Lee and I got our trackers, and we were trying them out. It wasn't this one. It was a different one. And it didn't work quite the way that either of us wanted. And so I went back to my old tracker that they'd given me before. But my dad had ordered a tracker, and it came shrink-wrapped in a box. And he's like, hey. My parents have taught me a lot about generosity. He's like, hey, you guys know somebody that you want to give this to? Here, you take it and you give it to somebody. I said, oh, okay, we'll figure something out. And I said, Leah, let's sell that. Because <laughs> I don't know somebody that needs this. We, didn't, we weren't even sure. But I looked online and people were selling it on eBay for $50. We got it for free. And if you look on the website for Virgin Pulse, the tracker sells for $25. And people are selling it online for $50. I said, well, thankfully, a little, little ethics kicked in. I'm like, well, let's just sell it for $25. Let's just even see if somebody would respond for $25. And sure enough, somebody responded and asked. And so we met them in the Target parking lot. And I went to them. And, and here I see two Spanish workers who don't really speak English very well, asking about it, and they see that it's brand new and wrapped in a box, and they're like, how much? I said, $25. And they handed me $25 in cash. And I know full well that they felt like they were getting a deal. And I know full well that that really wasn't a win-win situation. (laughs) And I don't want to act that way. I didn't even really think about it at the time, but looking back, I realized I just did that because I could. I could have charged them $15. That would be $15 that I didn't have before. And they would have gotten a $10 deal. But instead, I charged them as much as I possibly could. And how often do we treat people in the way that we know will benefit us most? But the golden rule is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Jesus said that this, if you do this, this fulfills all the law and the prophets. So this involves our financial lives. That means that when I deal with you, when you deal with me in financial matters, I should be seeking your best interest as much as I'm seeking my best interest and figuring out how the two of us can work out a deal that we both benefit from. That is the picture in Scripture. Let alone the picture of generosity that's repeated again and again. And so when you get down to Revelation chapter 13 and we read that there's an economic pressure put on us that we're not able to buy or sell, I realize that I've got to totally let God disabuse me of myself, my selfish impulses in economical things. Real quickly, before we go there, do you remember in First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 3 where we looked at that list of things that it said in the last days 
these type of people are going to be. They're having a form of godliness, but denying the power. These are, are the religious folks who are actually, and it lists this long laundry list, but in verse 2 it starts off saying they will be lovers of self. That's what we talked about last week. That self-absorption is the, the cause of, of many mental health problems, and that in the end it will be selfishness or selflessness, and we'll choose one or the other way. But the first thing is lovers of self. You know what the second thing is? Lovers of money. That they will love money in the end. And, and, and 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says that, that the love of money is the root of, and King James will, New King James will put all kinds of evil, but that's supplied. It's the root of all evils. This, this covetousness, this focus on gain, this focus on me first, this is the problem. And it often manifests itself in our finances, in my finances. And so in Revelation chapter 13, the last verse depicts this moment where we're not going to be able to buy or sell in verse 17. And then verse 18 says, here is wisdom, right? Here's, here's the thing that we need to really understand and figure out. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, sometimes we just picture, well, that's the mark of the beast. There's going to be 666, right? Tattooed on the forehead and, and on the hand. No, it says the number of the beast is 666. And, and if you'll remember, all of the Bible ends in Revelation. This is a summation of the entire Bible. And so what we need to look, first of all, is, well, where does the number 666 appear in other places in the Bible? So there is... Two places that it appears besides Revelation, well, three, but it, two of them are, are, are similar occurrences in Nehemiah where it's listing how many people were a part of one particular group of people. But there's another place, a place that has to do with, with coercion, with force going on, with a, an economic system where money is, is being accumulated in obscene quantities. In fact, it happens with the wealthiest man in history, at least in Bible history. It happens with King Solomon. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, when Solomon is forcing people to labor in order to build his temple, he's forcing them to, to, to build this thing that God designed to create a world attraction to the giving nature of God, and he's forcing people to build it. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14 says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. I, I love how Ty Gibson, and, and I encourage you to check this out in Light Bears, uh, on the, the YouTube channel for Light Bears or on our YouTube channel, the series The End, Economics in the End. He says it this way, the number 666 symbolizes the economic system that is leveraged to enforce the mark of the beast. right? And we can see descriptors of this very clearly for what took place in the Middle Ages with the Catholic Church. And we can see how clearly that applies to them as they force people to believe you're going to burn in hell if you don't pay us enough money. And then it describes at the end that there's going to be a religious political system formed in the United States that again will say, look, you can't buy or sell. You're going to die if you don't worship in this particular way. Friends, it is crucial that we learn to live the principles of Jesus in our finances. It's crucial that we are not self-absorbed when it comes to our finances. Just look at what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, the last verses that we'll look at. Matthew chapter 6, he says it this way. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, meaning wealth. And the other place where Jesus says this, he, he tells the Pharisees this, noting that they are lovers of money. Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? They were obsessed with themselves and they were lovers of money. But then 
Jesus gives the solution. Earlier he said, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You want your heart more and more with God? You want your heart with His system? Then give generously to those in need around you. Give generously. And then he goes on to say, and this, this gives us that ground for our generosity. Verse 25, Therefore I say to you, like, so, so don't serve God. Uh, you cannot serve both God and money. So therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. How many of you would like to have a worry-free life? What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about Clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed or arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore why do you worry, saying, what shall I eat or what shall I drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Put your your priorities there. Put your time there. Put your money there. Put everything into this. Because in the end, that's the only way that we'll be willing to trust him completely. I remember the day where Lee and I were considering moving back to, to, we found out actually that we were going to the seminary at Andrews University. And as we were planning for that, trying to figure out how our finances would work out there, we said, well, we're living in this motorhome. So the good thing is if we sell this motorhome, we're going to have this money that we'll be able to pay for Leah's degree when we get there, that we'll be able to pay for, for things that we need there. And, and so we put the motorhome up for sale. It sold a little bit less than what we wanted it for, but that was okay. And then we went off to camp meeting. We sold it the week before the camp meeting. And we, we got to camp meeting, and, and, and there they had you praying about what you're going to give to this evangelism offering, what, what you're going to give to his kingdom. And as we're praying about this, Lee and I are talking about it, and we're praying about it, and we didn't really want to share things. And I remember that last Sabbath. We were like, okay, we've got to figure out. We've, I have to come down with a number. As we're praying, I saw multiple times in Scripture the exact amount of thousands of dollars that our motorhome sold for. And, and we had two different numbers that we had both come up with. And when you added those two numbers together, they came up to the total amount that our motorhome had sold for. Like, God, you don't understand. We're going to Andrews. They're going to cut my salary. We want Leah to get a degree. We can't handle this. We, we can't give all. But God led us forward. And we decided to give all of that to the evangelism offering at Camp Meeting. And we went off to Andrews without a savings account, a big, big hopes for being able to pay for Leah's education, figuring, well, maybe we'll have to get a student loan. I don't know how it's going to work. But you know what? God is faithful. He will never let you down. He says, don't worry. If you'll only seek first my kingdom, I'll take care of you. Give and it will be given to you. Pressed down and shaken together. I will chase after you with blessings, he says in Deuteronomy. If you'll only trust me to give to you. Malachi chapter 3 says, just test me in this. I'm going to pour out a blessing on you that you can't contain. And I'll tell you that we went through that time at Andrews. And Leah graduated, I graduated, and we walked out of there debt-free. We didn't have everything, but we had it, everything that we needed. And as you look forward in your life to what's coming on this planet, I want to encourage you to remember the Sabbath. Remember that, that there's a day that reminds us that all of this, everything that we have comes up from the ground, that they mine stuff from the ground to make everything that we have. It's all His. He's the Creator, and we are all equal. None of us are better than the other. We are all on the same foot, footing. So on the Sabbath, they forget the financial concerns. I'm throwing those out of there. In fact, if you don't want to bring an offering to church and you feel like you still need to give to God's work, then do it online. We have that opportunity for you. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Whatever you have to do in order to say, I, on this day, I'm saying I'm not a part of the system anymore. 
encourage you, tithe. Give that 10% back to him. Return it because it's his. And we're actually robbing him of his just due if we take it from him. Live generously. Treat others in a win-win situation. Give, give, give. Because that is the heart of God is revealed on the cross. You know, as they were headed up, up that path, and they got further and further along as they, they got a little bit further. Pretty soon they realized that, that they couldn't ride the horses anymore. That the path got narrower and narrower and narrower. And so pretty soon they had to, to let the horses go. And then, then as they were walking along, pretty soon they realized something. Ah, this path is so skinny that my shoes are too big. And so they kicked off their shoes. And they're going along. They're trying to go along the path. And it's getting so, so slippery, so narrow, that, that pretty soon they're, they're ripping their socks off. As they're ripping their socks off in order to get grip on there, they continue going along and they notice that the white wall is, is covered with blood because people have been pressing so hard against it. And, and they realize that people have tread that path before and that they're leaving an example behind them and they keep on pressing on. And at that moment when they took off their socks, cord, a, a cord came down for each of them from over the wall. And, and they began to wonder where it came from, but they, they held on to it and they began to realize that God is holding this cord. But then finally the path got so narrow that even their feet couldn't get on it until finally the path came to a place where it ended. And they looked out and there on the other side was this beautiful land. Like the promised land. Like you might imagine that heaven would look. And as they looked at that, sweat began to pour from their faces. As they thought, "How? what do we do right now? And, the, and you know what happened in that moment? The cord became as big as their bodies. There was no way that they could hold anything else except for to grab a hold of that cord and to swing across the chasm into the promised land. That, my friends, is the only way through in the end. To let everything go and to cling to Jesus. Father, thank You. You invite us into what You live to do in giving to us. You gave all on the cross. Thank You, Jesus. And Lord, we don't want to pass by this moment. I, for one, want to say, Lord, I'm all in. I want to give You all. And Lord, maybe somebody is sitting here thinking, I've got nothing. I've got nothing but debt. Father, show them what they can give. And please provide for their needs according to Your riches in Christ Jesus. Father, maybe some of us are sitting here thinking, but I need that wealth. I need it for the future. That's how I'm going to provide for myself. Father, thank you for blessing people with wealth. May they be good stewards. May they know what you're calling them to do or not to do with that wealth. Father, I don't pretend to have the answers, but I pray that each and every one of us would daily seek your will about how you want us to be your stewards, how you want us to allow your character to be reproduced in us the character that gives and gives and gives so that in the end we're ready to stand because all we know how to do is to give thank you father for the giver that you are and thank you for promising to transform our hearts by the power of the holy spirit we need you would you come in and take our hearts of selfishness take our hearts that love money and transform them to be hearts that give and give and give. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.